The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Come now to God's Word together this morning, and I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me, where we're going to continue in a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we began back at the beginning of the month. We're right now in the middle of the Beatitudes, these brief declarations of blessing on those who are disciples of Christ. And as we come to these verses this morning, I just want to remind us of what Dr. Rogers said a few weeks ago when he introduced this series, that that these verses are not written in order to tell us how to become disciples of Christ. Rather, these verses are written to describe those who are disciples of Christ. The Beatitudes, the the Sermon on the Mount, these uh, verses are giving us a picture of what Christ is doing in and for those who are his people. This morning we're looking at verses 7 through 9. So would you... Read with me Matthew 5, verses 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. What a precious gift your word is to us. Not just that we have your words that you did speak, but also words that you continue to use to speak to us by your Spirit. I pray that you would be with us this morning for Christ's sake. Amen. Our goal this morning is to consider here three marks of Christ's disciples. They are merciful, they're pure in heart, and they're peacemakers. I'm guessing that Many of you, I know that our teens have experienced this, but probably any of you who have been new to a business or a school have experienced at some point the joys, the awkward joys of icebreakers. And that time when everyone comes together and tries to get to know each other with some activity that's very awkward, but oftentimes it's still helpful for getting to know people at least in some way or, or learn to recognize people. And one of the icebreakers we have often used in our youth group is going around the circle and each person introduces themselves and then they choose three words, three individual words that they think best describe who they are, their, their personality or their interests or, or something about themselves. And the great thing about it is that I usually can find a lot more about this person from the words they choose than just the words themselves. Invariably, at least one person, usually a seventh grade boy, will will choose something like, well, I I think I would choose amazing, talented, and handsome for three words. And, And I know a lot about that person. In fact, I know a lot of what to expect from that person in the next six years. Well, so far, the Beatitudes have emphasized that Christ's disciples know their own need and their poverty before the Lord. They've said that that they are satisfied by God in Christ. But now here in these verses, the Beatitudes give us three words, three characteristics, 
three key ways in which Christ's disciples are changed by Christ when they are saved by him. In fact, these qualities of mercy, purity, and peace are found together in a number of the New Testament passages that describe the the character of those who belong to Christ. I think of of Colossians chapter 3 where we see these concepts where, where Paul says God's chosen and holy people are to be compassionate, kind, meek, patient, forgiving, letting the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. Or even more directly, James 3.17 says that the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. And my hope this morning is to spend a few minutes looking at each of these three qualities in turn and then conclude by looking at the blessings that God has promised to his disciples here. So let's, let's start with verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. And probably the first question we have to ask as we come to this verse is, well, what does it mean to be merciful? And if you've grown up in the church, uh, as I have, or been around the church, you've probably at some point heard something like, well, mercy is not giving someone the punishment that they deserve. And this is a helpful definition, particularly when we think of what Christ has done for us, but it is a particularly legal definition of mercy. And I think most of us would probably say, well, I I don't know how often I'm really in a place to cancel a punishment that is owed to someone. And maybe if we are, it's as a parent or a teacher, and I'm not really sure if I should cancel the punishment that is owed to, to the person here. So how exactly does this apply? But another aspect of mercy addresses our attitude or our heart toward those around us. Mercy in this sense is a recognition of the suffering or pain of others. It's a sympathy or a pity for those who are undergoing suffering or pain. And it's a desire to relieve that suffering in any way we can. One commentator says mercy in this sense is sympathy plus action. And in this sense, mercy comes into play in our lives every single day. This definition calls us to notice and move toward others in their suffering and pain. But it doesn't just involve physical suffering or pain. It also calls us to be grieved for the suffering and the misery that comes from being enslaved by sin. It calls us to be grieved when we see those trapped by sin, enslaved by the ruler of this world. To be grieved by the lostness of those around us who don't know Christ. I think this was the mercy that drove Stephen. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who is being stoned by the Jewish leaders. And as he looks at the leaders throwing the stones, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is a heart that saw men trapped in sin and the misery of sin and longed for them to be relieved and prayed that the Lord would not hold sin against them. But what can motivate a person to pity those who are murdering him and not cry out for vengeance instead. I believe it's the fact that Christ has relieved our own suffering, sin, and pain. And he's relieved our own sin, suffering, and pain by taking that pain upon himself. He has gone even to the point of death in order to relieve us from this suffering. And it's this realization that motivates a deep sense of mercy in our own hearts. And so as we read this verse, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, we need to remember that this verse is not saying 
well, if I show mercy to other people, then God will show mercy to me. The whole context of the Beatitudes says that it is exactly the opposite of that. Because Christ has shown unfathomable mercy to me. Because Christ has pitied me in my distress and gone to the depths of death to rescue me. Oh, that I would in turn be able to spread His hope and mercy and relieve my fellow sufferers in any way that I can. So I was thinking about this. I had a a memory of driving home from college for Christmas. I had to take the turnpike all the way across Ohio, and I stopped partway through to use the restroom and buy a drink. And as I went to check out and buy my drink, I pulled out my wallet and realized I had $4. Now, $4 is enough to buy a drink, but it is not enough to pay the toll going across the state of Ohio. So I had a brief moment of panic, and I I asked the person who was checking me out, I said, what's going to happen when I show up at the end of the toll road and I don't have enough money to pay them? And behind me, there was a a businessman, and he heard me ask this question, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and and he handed me $5. And my visions of being held in chains at the turnpike exit and having to call my parents were relieved, the flood of relief. And I'm confident that if I'm ever at a toll booth, or or a rest stop, and I hear a student say I don't have enough money for the toll, I'm going to pull out my wallet faster than anyone around him and give him $5. That's because someone had mercy on me and gave me $5. How much more should we be moved with mercy for others when we have been relieved the misery of sin and the price of hell forever? How much more should we who are forgiven by Christ be the quickest to show mercy to any around us? And so as we consider our hearts this week, maybe we can ask ourselves questions like this. When I think of those who have wronged me, am I angered at them? Do I want to avoid them? Or can a heart of mercy shine through? Can I feel sorry for them as people in the misery of sin, perhaps deceived by Satan in this world? Can I think that if Christ showed that person mercy, how much more should I be willing to show them mercy? When a person snaps at me or is angry with me in their, in their weariness or their stress, will I understand the pain and stress in their lives and long to relieve it? Or will I focus on the wrong that they did me and stew on it? When I consider how many people around me are suffering in, in various ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually, will, will I withdraw from them and focus on my comforts and keeping my life the way I want it? Or will I move toward them Let me move toward them in a heart longing to engage them and relieve what suffering I can. See, the disciple of Christ is marked by a life of mercy because the mercy of Christ that Christ has shown him is always on his mind and motivating his heart. Blessed are the merciful. Well, let's move on to verse 8. Christ's disciples are called pure in heart. Once again, we probably have at least a general idea of what pure in heart means, but the, the term is still can be a bit vague. So maybe we should start by saying what pure in heart is not. Being pure in heart is not just being pure. And Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience. They would have known exactly what being pure meant. It meant keeping the law. It meant being ceremonially and morally clean. It meant being above reproach. But living a life that looks pure on the outside, that goes to church, that keeps the rules, that looks respectable, is not what Jesus is referring to. You remember just a few chapters later in Matthew, how 
Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says, why are you concerned with cleaning the outside of the cup when the inside is still full of greed and self-indulgence? And so we need to distinguish between living a respectable, honorable, and clean-looking life and being pure in heart, which searches us to the core of who we are. Well, what is purity of heart then? Well, Jesus refers to our heart, which is the center of our being. Our heart refers to our desires, our motivations, our soul, the deepest part of who we are. And it's there at the core of our being that Jesus' disciples are pure. Well, what does it mean to be pure? The pure, I think, pure gets at two things. First, it gets at the idea that we are unmixed or undivided. Maybe you think of, of baking and you're baking batter and something gets in it that's not supposed to be in it and it's no longer pure. Well, the pure in heart is single-minded and unmixed. It's single-minded in its love and longing for Christ. And second, pure means that we are unstained. We are not clouded or stained by sin and moral failure. I think perhaps the psalmist summarizes it best when he says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous English preacher, put it well when he writes, Being pure in heart means that we have an undivided love which regards God as our highest God, a good, which is concerned only about loving Him. He says, reducing it still further, it means that we should live to the glory of God in every respect and that, we should, that He should be the supreme desire of our life. It means, he says, to be like the Lord Jesus Himself who did no sin, was perfect and spotless and entire. He was pure. But that seems impossible. How can that be something that we can attain? I mean, even the best of us responded with a snarky remark or saw our profound selfishness at some point this past week. I think we need to remember several things. First, if we are united to Jesus Christ and cleansed by His blood, we are pure. If we are united to Christ, then this is the promise of Scripture, that we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, 1 John 3, 2. In fact, I think the word pure is the perfect word to describe those who have put their faith in Christ and are united to Him. Because pure gets at both the fact that we have been cleansed by His blood from every stain and spot of sin, and we are being remade, our hearts are being made new, into His likeness by His Spirit. We have been made pure by Christ. And because we have been made pure by Christ, that is also what we strive for. That is our greatest desire because we know it is what He wills. It is what He longs for. It is what He is aiming at in our lives. And so yes, we wait to be perfected on the last day. Sure, in a broken world and and lives still marked by the, the scars of our sin, we are not perfect But even now, for everyone who is united in Christ, this new, resurrected, remade, purified identity, purified heart is breaking through and showing up in our lives more and more. Pure is our new identity in Christ Jesus. As Paul says, Christ's people have been washed. They have been justified. They have been sanctified in their Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think about this, this week, the key question is not how are we going to fix our lives 
in this way or that way so that we'll be pure. If purity of heart is our goal and it is found in union with Christ, then our application is to return again and again to Christ and who we are in Him. And of course, because of who we are in Christ and what Christ is doing in us and longing for us and accomplishing in us in Christ Jesus, we also will strive for purity and holiness. We will also fight hard against sin knowing He hates sin. That's who Christ made us to be. That's what He's working out. And we will be part of that with all of our heart and soul. In other words, what we're seeing here is that Christ's cleansing blood that makes us pure and our aching effort for the purity of righteousness are not contradictions. They go hand in hand because they are both fruits of trusting Christ and our Savior's work in our hearts. Christ's disciples are pure in heart. That is His work in us and is what we aim for and long for as His disciples. Well, let's turn to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. When we come to this mark of Christian disciples that his people are peacemakers, we need, I think, to remember at this point that these beatitudes are marks of those who have been changed by Christ. See, the temptation is to take these as sort of general moral qualities that God is pleased with. And if we take these as sort of general moral qualities that God is pleased with, then it can be tempting to say, well, you know, peacemaker. I'm a, I'm a pretty good peacemaker. You know, I'm a laid-back personality. I'm the person in my family who tries to make peace. I, I like to appease people. I hate conflict. I mean, heavens, our, our world loves peace. Who isn't for peace? We see bumper stickers for peace. We march for peace. Not judging others and accepting everyone is one of the great modern virtues of our society. So we think, well, great. You know, individually, perhaps, as, as a culture, we're doing great at working towards peace. Or on the flip side, we might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really a laid-back person. I, I really struggle with patience. But you know what? I've got Beatitudes 2, 4, and 8 down pretty well. And God just knows that I'm kind of a grumpy person. So we'll, we'll be, we should be okay. But both of these misses the fact that these Beatitudes mark disciples changed by the gospel. And that means that they describe characteristics that will not be true of anyone who is not in Christ. You may be a laid-back personality. Someone who's not a Christian may hate conflict or want world peace or be a compassionate person. But being a peacemaker that Christ is calling us to here goes far beyond that personality trait. Or we may, we may say, you know, I'm not a person, patient or peaceful person. But if we are in Christ, Christ confronts that. Christ wants to change us even in ways that sin has shaped us to our core. So here we are. A peacemaker is not someone who just lets sleeping dogs lie. He's not just someone who tries to appease someone. So what is being a peacemaker in Christ? I think being a peacemaker involves at least two things. First, we might approach it this way. James chapter 4 asks this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It's a pretty good question for us to know if we're going to be a peacemaker. What causes fights in the first place? And James said, is it not our passions or our desires that are at war within us? In other words, our selfish desires are the cause of conflict when we don't get what we want. So a peacemaker then is someone whose old selfish heart has been nailed to the cross so that it is no longer I who live for myself. It is now Christ who who lives in me. It is now he who is shaping my heart to care more for the interests of others 
than for the interests of myself, as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. It is someone who is fighting harder to kill my selfishness than I am to get what I want. See, this new nature brings peace, keeps peace, and pursues peace because it is no longer focused on what I want in myself, but on Christ's love for others and how I might love others as well. But secondly, a peacemaker is someone who actively seeks peace wherever there's conflict, whether it be conflict with our closest friend or our fiercest enemy. Romans chapter 12 reminds us, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to challenge us to to stop worshiping and leave our gift at the altar and go make a higher priority of making peace with a brother we're in conflict with. A peacemaker is someone who places a high priority, who takes active steps to seek peace, resolve conflict, confess sin, seek forgiveness, bless those who curse, do good even to our enemies. Of course, this is not easy. But once again, Jesus came sacrificing himself, going even to the cross, in order to tear down barriers and walls of hostility between us and God and between us and each other. Ephesians 2 says, Christ himself is our peace, reconciling us to God and then reconciling us to each other, even across the fiercest divisions. And so once again, the point comes down to this. If God was willing to go to such great efforts to overcome my conflict with him and reconcile me to himself, how can I not go to any effort to seek peace with those around me? Here we have three spirit-worked changes, three characteristics that Christ is working in his disciples that are true of those who who are, are his own. But this passage is not just about what our lives look like in Christ. In fact, for any believer, the greatest thrill of this passage has to come in the second half of these verses where we see the blessings that Christ bestows on those who are his. These verses, in fact, should send shockwaves of joy and hope through our hearts. And a lot of times when we read the Beatitudes, we spend most of our time focusing on the first half of these verses. And we think, okay, I should be merciful. I should be pure in heart should be a peacemaker. And sometimes we fail to take the time to dwell as we should on the blessings that Christ is promising his people in the second half of these verses. So notice these blessings with me now. In verse 7, Jesus promises that we will be shown mercy. Now I think the way that we view this blessing is very telling. It can be easy, I think, for us to say, well, okay, I'm shown mercy. That pretty much is the gospel, right? I've known that my whole life. Or, okay, mercy so God doesn't quite give me what I deserve sometimes. And we can take it casually. But if I really know myself, if I really know who I am in my natural estate, left to myself, if I really understand that I was born a sinner, that my life was completely self-oriented, that I have left the all-glorious God out of the picture sometimes directly rejecting him to his face. If we understand that Scripture says we are in rebellion against God's call on our lives and that the only just and fair consequence for us is punishment, pain, and death, if we understand that to be true of us, then 
we can hear this, this God who says, I will show you mercy and it will thrill our hearts. See, whether we see this as a wonderful blessing or a mere reminder tells us a lot about where our hearts are. But the God of the universe, brothers and sisters, has responded to us with compassion, is willing to go to great lengths to relieve us out of our sin and our misery. Instead of punishment, we receive forgiveness. Instead of death, we receive life. Instead of separation from God, we have been reconciled and brought near to Him forever. That is the mercy that God has given us. It is the heart of the Gospel. It is the reason for our hope. What a blessing verse 7 gives us in Christ. But if anything, in verse 8, Jesus rises still higher. Because here He promises that His people shall see God. Now this is a weighty and an awesome promise. If you think back to the Old Testament, you'll remember that Scripture says on multiple occasions that no man can see God or He will die. Jesus says that no man has seen the Father except the Son. And the implication of Scripture is that the heights of our God's glory is so far above us that we as humans cannot survive the glory of His presence. And yet here is Jesus promising that we will see God. This is, in many ways, the whole point of Christianity. is the whole point of God's plan. That those who have been alienated from God are now going to be restored so that they can walk with Him in His presence and see Him once again. I think... If we think about that, as, as mankind, we lost God's presence because of our sin. And yet here is Jesus promising to bring us back to our deepest longing, the presence of God again. You know, the joy of seeing someone or something that I've longed for and waited for for months and years, perhaps traveled and struggled through something and I finally get to it. I think that's an emotion we can relate to. Maybe you think of, maybe you think of a soldier who's been on active duty for, for many months and he comes home and he sees his wife for the first time. Or he arrives home and he sits down on his couch in his own living room and rests for the first time. Here, we're talking about humans alienated from God from our sin. And Jesus says, My disciples, you will be brought back to Me and you will see me again. And that emotion, that arriving home to see God and be with Him is wrapped up in this promise. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it here. He says, we shall see Him as He is. This is surely the most amazing thing that has ever been said to a human being. If we but grasp this, it would revolutionize our lives. You and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. Surely the moment we grasp this, everything else pales in significance. Jesus says to us, all who are mine will see God. This is hope beyond hope. But then it goes further. In verse 9, we hear that Christ's disciples will be called sons of God. Surely it would be, uh, be beyond any reasonable exp uh, expectation that we would be called guests of God. Surely it would be more that we could hope for to be called friends of God. And yet here is Jesus saying, you will be called sons of God. Sons and daughters who can expect His fatherly care, His protection, His provision, His love, His wisdom. 
who have the right to call on him and climb in his lap and hear him affirm his love for us. Sons, a word that declares that all God's people, male and female, are full heirs of God's kingdom. Romans 8.17 is such a shocking and striking verse when it says that whoever is united to Christ by faith becomes a child of God and a joint heir together with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That we together are being called fellow heirs, joint heirs who divide the inheritance together with Jesus of God's heavenly kingdom? This is what it means to be a son of God, and I think it stretches our minds to process everything that's involved in being called a son of God. And so here we are. We will be shown mercy. We will see God. We will be called sons of God. In these three short verses, we're given a high and a deep vision of of blessing to God's people. And my prayer is that you and I leave here this morning with our hearts rejoicing, strengthened, amazed, and thrilled by the vision of our salvation in Christ that Jesus is offering us. I'm praying that this vision of blessing will cause the the trials of life and the temptations of life to dim in comparison to what Christ has given us in Himself. And I pray that if there are any of you here this morning who are standing at arm's length from God, from such a Savior, that these promises will call to your heart. Because Jesus is not a demanding ruler telling you to stop living your life your way and start living it my way. He is a great Savior who works this change in us by the power of His Spirit and heaps unimaginable blessings on His people because He has died for them. He has has risen for them. He has united them to Himself and called them to these blessings forever. So the question is, will you trust Him? Will you come to Him? It's the invitation for all of us this morning. Let's pray. God, what, what unfathomable blessings that we who are sinners would have the God of the universe come near and die in our place and rise again and give us Your Spirit to remake us and change us in these ways into people who could be merciful, who could be pure in heart, who could be peacemakers. I thank you that you have worked us in Christ and I pray that you would work this out more and more in our lives now even as we await their final perfection when we see you. And Lord, may these blessings thrill our heart. May these blessings guide our hearts and give us joy this week as we remember you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.